You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Well, that was a powerful scene from a very powerful movie, uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X. And in that scene, you see um, Malcolm X in action. And it's, uh, it's interesting that that's one of the few scenes that, that really show Malcolm X as a um, person capable of mobilizing people for action in the context of the African-American freedom struggle, in this case, an incident of police brutality. Um, how many of you have seen the, the film, by the way? Okay, nearly, nearly all of you. What did you draw from that, uh, from that scene? Just, uh, I'd like to get your sense of what uh, Spike Lee is very uh, skilled, tremendous uh, filmmaker, what, what was he trying to get you to feel in that scene? Yes? Well, um, it seemed like it's showing the appeal to just like an average black man on the street to see and that man stops his tracks and just like, whoa. So that's sort of like the appeal why people would join the And what happens at the beginning of the scene to kind of set it up? What's the woman in the crowd say? Like the Muslims say they talk good, good talk, but they don't actually do anything unless something happens to them. Okay, so she says, um, you know, they're, they're just all talk. There are no action um, unless somebody bothers Muslims. Uh, okay, so that's, that's the setup for the scene. Malcolm X is looking at this woman, taking that message. Then the scene happens. What else do we draw from that? Yes? Uh, he almost, like, leaves them with precision, like he's a military. Like, you know, like he's a general military, and then everyone else is just following precisely, they all march straight, you know, they were silent, they just... Okay, okay. Yeah, he says they're very disciplined, as opposed to the people who are in the background who are just kind of yelling and, and very upset about what's happening, but the people following him are quiet. He says, the police, you've got to take care of the, of, the, of the masses in the background, but I'll, you know, take care of the people who follow me because they're very disciplined. So he's making that distinction. What else? <coughs> Those of you who were here a little bit earlier when um, the previous scene had to do with, with Malcolm and women, and especially Sister Betty, uh, how do those scenes, how do you see those working together? You got, what, what happens in that earlier scene for those of you who are here? You see an empowerment of women as opposed to, say, like the SCLC, which is the NAACP, which kind of used the women, but they weren't in leadership positions. You have this woman who is... Uh, okay, and Sister Betty being a, a person, but is she in a position of power? Um, well, I mean, I guess she's not Malcolm X and she wasn't a minister, but um, she's definitely, like, talking to him as, as, a, as an equal, and he's treating her like an equal. Um, okay, okay, she's... She's uh, obviously somebody who's uh, worthy of his respect, and, uh, and he gives that respect. Uh, there's actually a scene earlier where he gets advice from Elijah Muhammad on um, what he should look for in a woman. Anyone remember anything about that? What does he, what does he say? Well, he, he mentions things like half your age plus seven. As as an ideal age for a woman um, uh, who's going to be his his wife, uh, and you and you get Malcolm X kind of repeating the advice 
in terms of his questions. Why is he asking the question about her height? Because that was part of it. You want somebody about the same height. So he's, in, in terms of women, he's portraying Malcolm X as somewhat inept, but with need of, in need of guidance from the father figure, Elijah Muhammad. And, and it turns out that that is a major part of his selection of, of his wife. Uh, he, he does rely on, on his advice. So any, anything else about, about this, that, about the film? When would you guess that the incident with Brother Johnson took place? Any guess? I mean, you've read a lot of history. Where would you place it in that history? What? Okay, why late 1950s? Because um, it's just when Malcolm is still head of the um, Muslim uh, mosque number seven in Harlem. Okay, how long does that last till? When does he leave that position? 63, six, 64 actually. Um, so it could have been any time before that in terms of that reason. What else? Just in terms of, of the of the level of militancy. It shows the transition between the pure civil rights movement to uh, the emergence of black power movement. Okay. So you'd probably guess a little bit later? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Just judging by like the cars they use, probably like 54, 55. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good way of guessing in terms of the film. Um, but it, it takes place in 1957, and it's, it's interesting that in the autobiography, in Malcolm X's autobiography, he uses that phrase by the woman that Spike Lee takes in the film and he, about how the Muslims are all talk, um, they talk a good game, but when it comes to action, nothing there unless somebody bothers Muslims. And But the comment in Malcolm X's autobiography comes in 1963 in the context of Birmingham. So he's basically saying at the time of Birmingham, people were increasingly saying that the Muslims are all rhetoric, uh, they, they talk a lot, but they're not willing to do anything. And it's interesting that in the autobiography, that's used as a stimulus for Malcolm's transition out of the Nation of Islam. Because he sees that as a criticism of the Nation of Islam. While in the film, Spike Lee uses it as a setup piece that basically says the Nation of Islam is the answer to the criticism. But if you think about it, that's a contradiction because the woman is saying, Muslims don't do anything unless somebody bothers Muslims, so what is the action? They're doing something in terms of someone bothering, you know, in this case, beating up a member of the Nation of Islam. So it's a lot of mixed messages. It's, it's interesting that if you watch the film, and this is, I think, a testimony to Spike Lee's power as a filmmaker, is that a lot of these questions don't occur to you. It's, it's the way, it's the way you, you go to a, a really good film, you know, especially a good action film or a, a uh, uh, suspense film, and you get caught up in it, and then after 
after the movie, you're talking about it with a friend, and you see all these holes in it, you know, in terms of it doesn't quite intellectually, the plot doesn't quite intellectually make sense, but while you're wrapped up in the emotion of it from one scene to the next, if you're in the hands of a powerful filmmaker, it all makes emotional sense. And it's, it's interesting for me because as a historian um, who has written about Malcolm X, uh, I went to the Spike Lee film with a different kind of attitude about it. Um, I ended up writing several reviews of, of the film uh, that were somewhat critical because of just that, that aspect of it, that given, giving him credit for his skill and power as a filmmaker, but at the same time raising some historical questions. And among these historical questions have to do with the issue of the mythology of Malcolm X. How much do we attribute to one individual in terms of a, of a major social struggle? It's the same question that I would raise about Martin Luther King and have raised about Martin Luther King. Was Martin Luther King responsible for the movement? I think you know enough now to know, you know from Awele's lecture and, and other things that you've read that many other people were responsible, that the Mount Montgomery bus boycott would have occurred without Martin, Martin Luther King. Uh, certainly, with respect to Malcolm X, a lot of these act, um, mass activities during the 1950s and 60s certainly would have, would have happened without Malcolm X because he really wasn't a civil rights leader. If anything, he was a critic of the civil rights movement. But he, he definitely was not guiding the activities. And that's part of his response to Birmingham because he's always, his attitude was always that the leaders of the civil rights struggle were first of all misguided because they wanted something that the society was not going to give and that was integration. And secondly, they lacked courage because they were not militant enough in terms of the tactics and strategies that they wanted to use. Uh, specifically with respect to Martin Luther King, he criticized him because of his nonviolence. But when we turn the critical gaze from Martin Luther King to Malcolm X, some of those same criticisms come to the fore. To what extent is Malcolm X a leader of a political struggle? He's certainly a leader within a religious organization. But is that organization, does it have a political message? Does it have a strategy to fit that political message? Is he guiding African Americans toward a political goal in a militant way? And I think when we look at it that way, we see that many of these same criticisms apply to Malcolm X, that he was a leader in search of a movement often responding to events, and particularly responding to the upsurge of mass activism in the 1963 period. Now I think with, with Malcolm X, what we see is a leader torn between his loyalty 
his loyalty to Elijah Muhammad and the <coughs> excuse me his loyalty to Elijah Muhammad and the nation of Islam, which took him from his earlier life, and I think the most effective scenes in Spike Lee's film are about Malcolm X's transition from his earlier life as a criminal and the way in which the nation of Islam turns him into a person who has great leadership qualities. But Malcolm X is not satisfied with that. <laughs> There's a number of reasons why he's not, and this, I think, leads to his split with Elijah Muhammad. Now, in the film, how is that split explained? What happens uh, in the film? Yes? Um, like, <coughs> Elijah Muhammad uh, has uh, some illegitimate children that uh, Malcolm X finds out about. Uh, so he had he has this disillusionment with his father figure, who he sees as a moral exemplar until he finds out about the illegitimate children. And that undermines his sense of, of regard for Elijah Muhammad, so therefore he eventually breaks with him. Well, what could be another explanation for that break? That, what I would suggest is that it's the politics of it that Malcolm X is getting very restless. You know, here he is in a apolitical religious organization that is waiting for Allah to bring about change. Now that might make sense in the early 1950s when Malcolm X first comes into the nation of Islam. There wasn't very much movement going on. There's no mass activity. So you can imagine somebody being drawn into this organization, seeing it has great potential. But what happens as the 50s with uh, not only Montgomery happening um, in the United States, but what's happening internationally? Yes? Liberation of Ghana. Liberation of Ghana, um, other African nations, at Asian nations, the Bandung Conference, 1955 in Indonesia. What's that all about? Does any, anyone recognize that, that term? You're talking about the Bandung Conference? Yeah. It was about um, the, the, I guess, the third world countries, uh, nations in African Asia, kind of exerting their... Yeah, for the first time, the non-aligned nations, the ones who don't see the world in east-west, communist, non-communist terms, they want to stay out of the Cold War. They want, to, uh, they want to develop on their own, independent of both the United States and the Soviet Union, nations like Indonesia, um, India, um, most of the African nations. So they are asserting themselves in the world. And Malcolm X always sees that conference of non-aligned nations is something that has significance to African Americans, that we should ally ourselves with those nations. Um, and that this will help the African American struggle. He wants to bring the question of African American rights to the United Nations, because he feels that the United Nations is changing with the entry of all of these new nations, 
and that that could provide leverage to bring about the changes that we want in the United States. And that it's in the interests of African Americans uh, to do that. Now this is the same argument that within this class we've had uh, Paul Robeson making that argument, Du Bois making that argument, particularly after World War II with the formation of the United Nations. That's why Du Bois comes to San Francisco in 1955, tries to get the issue of both colonization and the suppression of rights because of race. He wants to put these issues before this United Nations. Now that doesn't happen because the United States doesn't want it to happen. Uh, that's uh, the struggle over the founding of the United Nations. But it does get expressed through the International Declaration of Human Rights. And that distinction is one that Malcolm makes all the way through the 1950s and into the 60s. The distinction between human rights, that is, the rights that everyone around the world should have, and it's something that um, links African Americans and Asians and Africans and civil rights, which he sees is that's just what you're asking the United States government to give you, and they're not going to give you that anyway. So you can see Malcolm X struggling within the confines of this organization as the black struggle expands during the 50s and into the 60s, and particularly when we get to that crucial year, 1963. And that's when everything comes to a head. So the fact that he has this um, disagreement, or, or at least disillusionment with Elijah Muhammad based on the issue of illegitimacy is combined with his disillusionment in being in an apolitical organization at a time when African-American politics is exploiting on every front. Now, um, when, we, when we see the, the Spike Lee film, I think that there's a number of aspects of it that I can use as a, as a way of jumping off into a discussion of the real Malcolm X as opposed to the mythological Malcolm X. Um, the mythological, when we say mythological, does it mean that it's necessarily untrue? Probably not. That's not the way I would, I would take it. I would simply mean that it has, that the cultural truth sometimes has greater importance than the historical truth. The cultural truth would be that African Americans needed a person like Malcolm X. He served definite cultural needs. <coughs> For most African Americans, the notion of male assertiveness, a male who can take care of his family, a person who could stand up to white people, all of these cultural needs are served by a historical persona called Malcolm X. To some degree, the historical persona is actually the mythological persona. But there are points where they don't fit together. And that would be true, I guess, again, with any other person, with a Abraham Lincoln or um, George Washington. 
Um, you know, all of these are people who have mythological meaning in terms of, of America's need for, for a heroic figure and for African-Americans' need. And Malcolm X, of course, um, is one of these, and Martin Luther King is one of these. Uh, so I think we always have to look at, at, at both sides of these individuals. Now, with respect to Malcolm X, let me just say a few words about um, how the historian um, in me and other people have kind of looked at, at Malcolm X. It's only been in recent years that um, the critical study of Malcolm X has, has de developed. For most of the period since his death in 1965, Malcolm X's public image has been shaped by one book, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Now, just imagine um, if the, our understanding of Richard Nixon was limited to the autobiography of Richard Nixon, or just about any other figure that you would want to take. Uh, we wouldn't accept that as the basis for what we know. We would want to go, we would use that as a starting point just as we might use the autobiography of Martin Luther King, but any serious historian would want to look beyond it and try to determine to what extent does that image that is put forward in the book um, fit the historical reality. Now, it turns out that um, Spike Lee relied a great deal on the autobiography and for, his, for his film. Uh, the film starts with a scene about Malcolm X's father. Um, actually, it's a flashback scene um, after the film gets started, and he goes back. And the portrayal of the father, I think, is the beginning of Spike Lee's development of this kind of mythological character. Um, what was significant about Malcolm X's father? Okay, he was killed by a KKK member. What else? Why was he killed? Because um, they were attacking his neighbor and he shot at him with a gun yeah. in their direction to scare him away, saying, that, you know, we're not going to be scared of you. Don't come around here anymore. Okay, okay. He was, his father was somebody who fit that image that Malcolm X wanted to fit. That is, someone who was willing to stand up to white people. He was killed for it. That implants a memory in... Malcolm X's mind of he wants to kind of both improve upon his father by being a successful black militant, um, but he uses that as a, as a model. Now, the, it's interesting that the actual circumstances of his father's death are much more complex. It's not even clear that um, a racist was responsible for um, the death of, of Malcolm X's father. One of the reasons why the historians debate that is that uh, there was an insurance policy, and so therefore there was an investigation about the, about the death, and no one was ever found responsible, and um, according to the investigation, it was ruled an accident. Now, Malcolm X at the time was too young to, to understand one way or the other. He would have 
found out this from stories that other people told um, uh, within the family, and you can easily see how the family would have resented the fact that they did not get a payoff on their insurance policy because the death um, was, um, was ruled a suicide, basically, that, um, that his father had, had um, gotten drunk and, and fallen over a railroad track and, and been uh, hit by a, by a railroad car. Now, all of this becomes part of Malcolm X's, in the autobiography, part of his resentment that he holds white people responsible for his father's death. And in a larger sense, that's probably true because what happens to the family is that they become destitute, dependent upon white society. But for Malcolm X, what that also means is that he's raised by white people. Uh, he's placed in foster homes. Uh, much of his early upbringing is the result of the uh, care that he gets in these foster homes. Now, I think that the, the way I would look at this is compare Malcolm X's early life with Martin Luther King's early life. Both of them are the sons of people who had been Baptist ministers. Um, Malcolm X's father becomes a black nationalist affiliated with Marcus Garvey. Martin Luther King's father becomes a civil rights leader um, affiliated with the NAACP. Both of them, both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, grow up in households where they fear for their father's life. And in Malcolm X's case, that fear is realized because his father is killed, even, even as he's a, still very young. For Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, there was this fear that his father would be killed because of his civil rights activity. Martin Luther King is raised in a very stable home environment, black environment of black Atlanta, goes to a black college, uh, raised within a black family. Um, for Malcolm X, his life is actually much more has involved, involves much more integration with white society, but in a very negative way. Foster homes, schools that he doesn't like. He sees the underside of, of, of white society in terms of crime, drugs, other things. Um, in terms of his, his own attitudes, I think what we see is that Malcolm X learns to despise white society. Martin Luther King, until he gets well into his teenage years, has very little contact with white society and develops a more optimistic, ultimately more optimistic view of that society. Which one is most realistic? Well, it depends on what side of white society you were looking at. Certainly from Malcolm X's um, point of view, white society didn't look very good. When by the time we get to their formative years, Martin Luther King wants to model himself on his father, and his father's model is, is ever-present. That's the model he uses to go into the ministry. For Malcolm X, it's a substitute father. It's Elijah Muhammad. 
for Martin Luther King, I think that the notion of being reborn and taking a new name would have been inconceivable. He liked the name Martin Luther King Jr. That was part of his positive identity. For Malcolm X, taking on a new identity as a member of the Nation of Islam allowed him another chance in life. So we can see a lot of differences and similarities. Once we get to the late 1950s, though, I think that what I'd like to emphasize is, there, is that both of them had a great deal of similarities with respect to their relationship to the black struggle. Both of them wanted to assert leadership of that struggle. Martin Luther King had a lot of advantages from his background, uh, his connections to his family. Um, all of these his education, all of these gave him advantages. When we see the letters that Malcolm X begins to write to Martin Luther King, both criticizing him but also reaching out to him, and Martin Luther King not answering those letters. These letters start in the late 50s, Malcolm X usually inviting Martin Luther King to come to a, a Muslim rally and debate him or at least be part of a political discussion. You can imagine Martin Luther King saying, what do I have to gain from doing that? And just kind of having someone on his staff writing a letter saying, thank you for your letter, but I don't have really time on my schedule to, to join your rally. But understanding it from Malcolm's point of view, here is a person who is very confident of his ability to express his point of view, someone who feels that he should be asserting leadership in the, in the black community, that he should basically be in Martin Luther King's position, and if he was, black people would be much better off. And I think that that kind of sense of resentment comes to the fore in Malcolm X's um, rhetoric toward uh, Martin Luther King, that Malcolm X feels that if only he could assert leadership in the black community and perhaps have the, the advantages of a Martin Luther King, that the black community would be much better served. And you can kind of see, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about, um, uh, about Jesse Jackson. And I think that there's a lot of similarities there too because Jesse Jackson growing up not in a, um, as an illegitimate child, uh, someone from a relatively poor background, seeing other people with greater advantages asserting leadership in the black community, but feeling very strongly that he is the person best served to offer that leadership. Well, Malcolm X definitely felt that. Now, I wanted to um, kind of spend a little bit of time talking about Malcolm X's relationship with Elijah Muhammad. It's a, it's a very complex one. Um, I think it, it, to me, the nature of that relationship is revealed in Malcolm's attitude toward women because he does, in both in the film and in the autobiography, reflect a lot of Elijah Muhammad's notions about the role of women that it's the role of women is not to be the equal of man, 
the role of women is to be supportive of men. Um, and Elijah Muhammad was very assertive in terms of guiding the private life of the members of the Nation of Islam, and particularly Malcolm X, who reaches um, almost the age of 30 before he's married. I think he's actually um, 30 about the time he meets um, Betty, uh, Sister Betty. And uh, when they are married, it's with the recommendation of people around Elijah Muhammad. And they basically tell Malcolm X, it's, you know, you, as, a, as a leader within this organization, you have to find a wife. Uh, it's interesting that uh, a little bit earlier, um, people around Martin Luther King are telling him the same thing, and, and that kind of leads to his, that uh, as a black minister, you have to have a wife, and he feels that pressure. Now, in this case, one of the things that, that uh, one of the documents that came to my attention is a document that was part of the Malcolm X papers left in the family home after Betty uh, Shabazz um, uh, was killed in a, in a accidental fire that was set by one of her grandchildren. Um, these papers were put up for, op um, for auction, uh, actually in San Francisco. And uh, the papers were reclaimed by the family, but um, not before the text of some of these letters became public. And one of them is a letter that was written in 1959 by Malcolm X to Elijah Muhammad. And this is a year after he was married to um, Betty Shabazz. And I think it reveals a lot about the dependence of Malcolm X on Elijah Muhammad for guidance in every aspect of his life, including his troubled marriage to, to Betty. Um, and he, he starts by telling Elijah Muhammad about the troubles he's having he says, most brothers who follow you are slow to get married. This is not because they are against women, but because you make us see the place of the man and the great responsibility involved to a sister after marrying her. If a brother means, uh, by, means um, right by a believing sister, he has to move slowly from being, keep from being involved with her. Um, this creates a situation where sisters are more forward and aggressive in seeking husbands than the brothers are in seeking wives. I mention this not out of argument, disrespect, disagreement, nor to justify, but to point toward and shed more light on what created my own situation. I am not without blame or fault and have many weaknesses. I stayed single a long time because I knew my own weaknesses and shortcomings and felt that marriage would blunt my effectiveness. I just could not see where I could devote the time to a sister that is demanded by women today. And he underlines demanded. So I ducked, dodged, twisted, turned, and ran from marriage as long as I could. When I did marry, it was at a time of great mental and spiritual weakness on my part. Despite that, I didn't marry on the spur of the moment, as everyone thought. No one knows better than I how forward, fast, and aggressive even a Muslim sister can be. And I was the target increasingly, and not because I gave them hopes, as they now would have it seen. 
But I did see that I was weakening under the strain, so I decided to get married. I didn't marry on the spur of the moment. I deliberated long and selected carefully. I chose Betty over the others for many reasons, and even now I think she beats all the rest of them. She was physically strong, near my height, looked something like me, and seemed to be able to produce children that would be strong and resemble us both. Plus, she seemed intelligent and had trained qualifications that could be helpful to me in my work. And she was the darkest of the three. She, Betty Sue, and Evelyn, these were the three women that he was considering. And I don't go too much for real light women as a wife. Um, then he goes on and talks about, and he says that the main source of the trouble was based on sex, and he has sex in capital letters underlined. She placed a great deal more stress upon me than I was physically capable of doing. Please forgive me for this topic, but I feel compelled to tell you of it and will tell, you, tell it to no one else but you. At a time when I was going all out to try to keep her satisfied sexually, one day she told me we were incompatible sexually because I had never given her any real satisfaction. From then on, try as I may, I became very cruel to her. I didn't ever feel right with her in that sense. Now, what does this remind you of in terms of the candidness of this letter? What? Yeah, the, remember the Du Bois letter about his um, issues? I, I think. that one of the things that's very striking um, when we look at Malcolm X in, in terms of his private life is how ambivalent he was about many of the things that are, well, quite frankly, just not part of the myth of Malcolm X. Um, it's, it's interesting that when we look at the things that we see as the prime qualities of the myth, the strength of Malcolm X, well, here you see someone who is very emotionally dependent on Elijah Muhammad. When we look at him in terms of his racial attitudes, again, very complex. Um, he has a very extended um, uh, sexual relationship, lasts for about five years with a white woman during the 1940s. Um, and in many respects, um, that relationship, even more than his marriage to Betty, was one that was a voluntary relationship. While um, what you see with respect to his relationship with Betty is that he loves her, but he loves her in part because he, she fits his needs as a Muslim minister. Um, his attitudes about violence um, are also complex. We see Malcolm X as a person who represents black militancy in terms of assertiveness, and yet he's within an organization that restrains that militancy. For example, in 1963, in the March on Washington, members of the Nation of Islam are not even allowed to participate in the march. Um, he, is, he goes to the march, but he stands on the sidelines. 
He watches the marchers, talks to reporters, criticizes the leadership of the march. But you get the sense from his criticisms that it, everything would be okay if he had been invited to speak at the march. Um, so it's, 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 again, a very complex attitude. Now what I'm going to play next is a scene from a documentary about Malcolm X, which I think talks us, this scene shows a crucial period of Malcolm X's transformation. And it focuses on this issue of militancy in the context of the larger black militancy of the early 1960s. Well, I think anyone watching that and watching Malcolm's performance uh, speech at the, at the end of that scene would understand the dilemma that Malcolm faced uh, in 1962. Here he is telling people that under his leadership, black people would not um, submit to white oppression, that they, black people would fight back. And here we have a situation where the LA police raid the, the holiest place in the religion, kill people in the organization, and, they res and the response is not that different if the SCLC headquarters had been raided in Los Angeles. Um, the same response would go to court, get a, get a coalition of people together, and respond nonviolently. Uh, so this was a, a major point of departure, I think, for um, Malcolm X. One of the things we see him uh, saying in his autobiography is that he began to get much more restless, much more determined to move from the apolitical orientation, this non-engagement policy of the Nation of Islam. It's one of the points that I, I make when I published Malcolm X's FBI file in, in this book. Um, I was interested in the FBI file in part because it provides a, a window into Malcolm X's life other than the autobiography. The FBI, just like the FBI file on Martin Luther King, provides a way of understanding um, the subject of the FBI surveillance. You get it through the bias of the FBI, but you do get a window into that person's life that would otherwise not be available. But I was also interested in the question, how did the government perceive Malcolm X as a threat? And it's interesting that the FBI file, up to the point where Malcolm leaves the Nation of Islam, they only have an interest in getting information about, about the organization, whether the Nation of Islam will turn dangerous. They see it as a religious cult, but an, an apolitical religious cult. It's interesting in the context now of the threat of Islamic um, fundamentalism. Um, the Nation of Islam was not perceived as a security threat to the United States. You could be a member of the Nation of Islam, for example, and work for the government. Um, but you couldn't be a member of the Nation of, Isl uh, of the Communist Party, for example, and work for the government. So clearly, it was not considered a subversive organization. Um, as of 1963. After Malcolm X leaves the Nation of Islam, 
the amount of surveillance and harassment by the FBI increases tremendously. So clearly from the point of view of the, of the government and the FBI, Malcolm became much more of a threat outside the nation of Islam than inside the nation of Islam. So what they were concerned about was not so much the racial separatist message of the nation, but rather what kinds of political implications. And for that, I think that um, what we see happening during the last couple of years of Malcolm's life is that he becomes much more engaged with the African-American freedom struggle. This is one of the aspects that I recount in the textbook, um, which I assume you've read that part. Um, and you see during 1963, uh, Malcolm beginning to meet more often with members of other organizations. Uh, this is when he delivers his message to the grassroots, perhaps his um, greatest speech as a member of the Nation of Islam. It's at a conference called to bring together all the different elements in the black struggle. And for the first time, Malcolm is invited to participate and offer his own perspective. And he accepts that invitation. And after that, there are increasing contacts between grassroots leaders in the black struggle and Malcolm X. He still doesn't meet with, with Martin Luther King until 1964 when they have this chance meeting at the Capitol. But he meets much more with the grassroots activists. And in his speeches, that is reflected because he makes a distinction. And this is an increasing distinction between what's happening at the grassroots level and the leaders. What is his analysis of the, of the uh, March on Washington? Well, the March on Washington is a great, was a great idea that was being subverted by leaders like Martin Luther King and the NAACP and others. That the masses of black people coming out of Birmingham wanted to go to Washington and shut the city down. From Malcolm's perspective, that's great. That's moving in the right direction. That's the kind of militancy I'd like to see. It's those leaders who want to pacify the masses. And in his speech after um, the March on Washington, he directs his criticism at those leaders who are betraying the masses. During 1964, well, uh, this leads, of course, uh, to his being suspended from the Nation of Islam. He gives uh, a speech and uh, talks about the chickens coming home to roost after um, Mar uh, John Kennedy's assassination in November of 1963. And this is the occasion when Elijah Muhammad suspends him. Now, it's usually interpreted that Elijah Muhammad suspended him because he was embarrassed by those comments. And that's true, but you have to think about why would a leader of this separatist religious group care about whether one of his members made a, a speech that was deemed embarrassing. But in any case, I think that what it really was was a pretext that Malcolm X was becoming too independent, speaking out on too many issues, and for many people in the Nation of Islam, was 
subverting the leadership role of Elijah Muhammad, um, becoming not only heir, the heir apparent to Elijah Muhammad, but the person who was, while Muhammad was still alive, was becoming the real leader of the nation of Islam. Um, this leads to his conflict with other members of the nation of Islam who saw themselves as more loyal to Elijah Muhammad than, um, than Malcolm X. Uh, now, the leader of these, that group was Minister Louis X, later Louis Farrakhan. Um, Louis X had been recruited to the Nation of Islam by Malcolm X. Um, come, came out of Boston, um, kind of a middle-class um, person who had turned toward the Nation of Islam, very articulate, uh, someone who had Malcolm X's skill as an orator, someone who was capable of bringing more and more people into the Nation of Islam. And for a long time, Louis X was the protege of, of Malcolm X. However, in 1963, when Malcolm X begins to talk about Elijah Muhammad's illegitimate children and began to talk more forcefully on political issues, Louis X begins to break away from uh, Malcolm X. This culminates um, well, one of the grounds in which this struggle is carried on is over, is over um, Cassius Clay, who becomes Muhammad Ali. Uh, some of you know that um, uh, Malcolm X was very crucial in terms of turning Cassius Clay toward the Nation of Islam and seeing him as a person who could potentially be the greatest recruiter that the Nation of Islam ever had. So Malcolm X cultivated his friendship with um, uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, after Muhammad Ali wins the heavyweight championship fight and announces that he's a member of the Nation of Islam, this of course leads to a storm of criticism of him. Um, but Malcolm X becomes a very close friend um, of, of uh, Muhammad Ali. So there's a struggle over the loyalty of Muhammad Ali. Is he going to move toward Malcolm X or is he going to stay loyal to Elijah Muhammad? And in this crucial struggle, most of the people in the Nation of Islam place their bets with Elijah Muhammad, stay loyal to him. And when Malcolm X makes his break after serving his suspension, it becomes clear that he's not going to be invited back to the leadership role he once had. He breaks with the Nation of Islam and ultimately forms his own organization, the Organization of African American Unity. Only a handful of the people who had been his allies in the Nation of Islam join him in the new organization. This is obviously a, a very great disappointment, and he's particularly disappointed in Louis Farrakhan, uh, Louis X at that point, who had been his protege, and uh, Muhammad Ali. 
as once he does make the break and he begins to form the organization of African American uh, unity, the opposition from within the nation of Islam is not as strong as when Malcolm X begins to make open criticisms of Elijah Muhammad and ultimately form his own religious organization as a rival to the nation of Islam. Mal Louis X, uh, Louis Farrakhan, becomes the leader of this anti-Malcolm group within the nation of Islam. In 1964, he sends an open telegram warning Malcolm that the nation of Islam shall no longer tolerate your scandalizing the name of Elijah Muhammad. And in an article in the final call, in, in the um, Muhammad Speaks, the newspaper of the nation of Islam, says the die is set and Malcolm shall not escape especially after such evil, foolish talk about his benefactor, Elijah Muhammad. Such a man as Malcolm is worthy of death and would have met death if it had not been for Muhammad's confidence in Allah for victory over his enemies. Well, this is, publishing an article like this is basically like publishing a, a hunting license for uh, anyone in the, in the uh, nation of Islam to go after after Malcolm, and within three months, he's, uh, Malcolm is assassinated. But before that happens, um, Malcolm reaches out to his allies in a number of ways. I mentioned in the, in the textbook, a meeting with members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, by chance in, in uh, Nairobi, as the SNCC workers were going through Africa, um, making contacts with African um, nationalists. Malcolm X is also going through um, Africa, making contacts on, on the African continent. They happen to meet up in Nairobi, and that meeting becomes the beginning of a, of a dialogue afterwards that involves Malcolm X inviting members of the nation of, of SNCC to come to New York. Fannie Lou Hamer and um, people in Mississippi accept the invitation. And also, um, members of SNCC invite Malcolm X to come south to help the movement. And eventually, Malcolm X accepts this invitation, and that's what leads him to go to Selma um, in early 1965. Um, just a few things about this, uh, these meetings. I think that they are extremely important. They're within a few months of Malcolm X's assassination. Um, the Spike Lee film, for example, I think would have been a much stronger and more interesting film if he had given more attention to these last few months of Malcolm X's life. Part of this, I understand uh, from Spike Lee, is, was just simply financial. That uh, he didn't get the kind of big budget that he wanted to do his epic. And I think he threw a lot of that budget into all of the early development. It really breaks down into three parts, the, the film. Um, uh, Malcolm X's formative years up to the point of his entry in the Nation of Islam, his 
time in the Nation of Islam, which is basically a, a period, lots of speeches and that scene with Brother Johnson. And then the last third of the movie is his break, break with uh, Elijah Muhammad. But that is conveyed not through any really serious discussion of where Malcolm was going politically, but rather uh, lots of scenes of Malcolm X waiting for assassination. That's the only way I can describe it. It's, it's literally waiting for the telephone to ring. Um, sitting around apartments, you, you see him kind of watching the television screen, and there's this activist movement going on, but he's literally paralyzed as he waits to be assassinated. What you don't see, and what, it, what I think would have made the film a lot more interesting, would have been a film, for example, a, a scene where Malcolm X is meeting with Fannie Lou Hamer in New York. Um, I have a picture of, of, that, of that rally, and Fannie Lou Hamer is in a position of respect and, and admiration uh, as she's treated as this heroic figure from the Mississippi struggle. And Malcolm X pledges to do what he can to help uh, the voting rights struggle that's going on in the South. Um, just a few weeks later, Malcolm X goes to Selma at the invitation of the young activists um, at Tuskegee and, and other places in Alabama who were then carrying on this voting rights campaign that culminates in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, Malcolm X goes there and delivers a speech <coughs> which I think, again, is a, is a crucial speech for Malcolm's transition because he says that he's in back of the voting rights struggle 100%. And he, um, I believe that black people have the absolute right to use whatever means are necessary to gain the vote, he says. Now, um, he also meets Coretta Scott King. He tries to meet with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King is arrested a few days earlier. If that had not happened, you know, who's to say what that first extended meeting with uh, Martin Luther King would have resulted in. But clearly, he, one of the things he wanted to do while in, in Selma was to meet with uh, King, discuss the situation. He meets with Coretta. And he says, I really did come thinking that I could make it easier. If white people realize what the alternative is, that is Malcolm X, uh, perhaps they will be more willing to hear Dr. King. Um, and it's also during this time that Malcolm X and some of the people close to him, including Clarence Jones, who has spoken in this class, try to arrange a meeting of Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X in New York. Among those who was, uh, were active in this, uh, Sidney Poitier, the actor, uh, tries to um, make this arrangement. Um, um, Bayard Rustin, who knew both of them, uh, had, uh, Rustin had debated uh, Malcolm X, um, so he was clearly on the other side from Malcolm X, but he felt that Mal Martin Luther King should meet uh, Malcolm so that they would gain a greater understanding of their of their perspectives. 
probably this meeting would have happened if not for the assassination of, of Malcolm X. Now, just a few words about the assassination. Uh, there's been lots of conspiracy theories about who was responsible for the assassination. And clearly, um, these conspiracy theories were uh, aided by the fact that one of the first um, people to come forward when Malcolm X is assassinated and was uh, pho photographed um, with um, the body of Malcolm X at the Audubon um, Auditorium was an undercover agent uh, for the, um, who had worked with the New York Police Department. But I think it's pretty clear that um, many people in the Nation of Islam wanted Malcolm dead. And it wasn't necessarily because of his politics, but because of what in the um, newspaper article was called scandalizing his name. That is, the bad things that uh, Malcolm X was saying about Elijah Muhammad. And these particularly had to do with the um, Ill illegitimate children. But I think that it's interesting to point out that, that during this time also, Malcolm X was more, becoming more hard-hitting in his criticism of Elijah Muhammad's political perspective. And I'll just read a, a little bit from a, a speech that he gives just a week before his assassination. In, it, this, in this speech, he talks about why it was that the black Muslim movement, as he says, was organized in such a way that it attracted the most militant, most uncompromising, most fearless, and the youngest of black people in the United States. That's who went into it, those who didn't mind dying. They didn't mind making a sacrifice, he said. And they were interested, what they were interested in was freedom and justice and equality, and they would do anything to see that it was brought about. These were the people who have followed Elijah Muhammad these past 12 years. The government knows it, but all these upfront militants have been held in check by an organization that doesn't take an active part in anything. And therefore, it cannot be a threat to anybody because it's not going to do anything against anybody but itself. Then he goes on. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Today, I wanted to start out uh, talking about the film Robert F. Williams um, and Black Power. Uh, the film is called Negroes with Guns. And unfortunately, we have a technological glitch, and the film um, is not going to be available. But you were able to hear a little bit of Robert F. Williams' voice. And I wanted to use that as a starting point to get into a discussion about Stokely Carmichael and the rise of the black power consciousness in 1966. For Stokely Carmichael, as a student at Howard University, Robert F. Williams was a major factor in his um, transformation. At a time when Williams had gained attention for challenging the uh, the commitment to nonviolence of most of the movement. He had argued for armed self-defense uh, during the late 1950s as the leader of an NAACP chapter in Monroe, North Carolina. And this, of course, had um, raised the ire of the leaders of the NAACP who had suspended Robert F. Williams 
which made him more of a national figure, and he engaged in a public debate with Martin Luther King over King's nonviolence versus Robert F. Williams' insistence upon uh, the right of, of black Americans to use, use arms um, to defend themselves. Now, this was at a time when Malcolm X was not really very much of a, of a factor. Very few people had heard of, of Malcolm X. So Robert F. Williams plays this role of, of arguing against this philosophical commitment to nonviolence. Now, tactically, uh, he understands that in, in the South you have to use nonviolent tactics most of the time, but he does argue very strongly that if attacked, you should be prepared to defend yourself. Furthermore, in 1961, he gains attention because he, uh, in the midst of the debate about Cuba, uh, the UN ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, had uh, deplored the betrayal, Castro's betrayal of the Cuban <coughs> Revolution. And he said that the United States um, reserved the right uh, to send assistance, military if necessary, to any people struggling anywhere for human rights and democratic freedoms. Well, Robert F. Williams uses this as an opportunity to write a letter to the UN ambassador, and he said, Mr. Ambassador, uh, co please convey the following appeal. Now that the United States has proclaimed military support for people willing to rebel against oppression, oppressed Negroes in the American South urgently request tanks, artillery, bombs, <laughs> money, and the use of American airfields and white mercenaries to crush the racist tyrants who have betrayed the American Revolution and the Civil War. We request the world's prayers uh, for this noble undertaking. Robert F. Williams, President, NAACP, Monroe, North Carolina. Well, um, <laughs> the students at, at Howard um, reacted very positively to this, and uh, for Stokely Carmichael, this was a sign that the movement was changing. Now, one way of getting into this discussion would be to uh, look at Stokely Carmichael and the group at Howard University as a um, developing uh, faction within SNCC. Um, at that time, most of the influence within SNCC came from the Nashville chapter. And the Nashville chapter, as you know, was heavily influenced by James Lawson, who um, uh, emphasized Gandhian nonviolence. And in fact, he was probably even more equipped than King to push the Gandhian ideas because he had actually been to India and studied uh, Gandhian ideas. And out of that Nashville chapter came the early leadership of, of SNCC, uh, people like John Lewis, who becomes SNCC's first chairman, Diane Nash, um, James Bevel. You know, um, all of these people kind of came out of this, this uh, workshop that uh, James Lawson had organized. And James Lawson wrote the initial statement of purpose of, of SNCC. So SNCC itself was deeply committed to kind of James Lawson's vision of a nonviolent revolution. Um, and probably the most uh, influential member of SNCC, uh, Diane Nash, was a protege of, of James Lawson. At the same time, though, there, there were sit-ins at many colleges. 
Um, and one of the reasons why Stokely Carmichael, as a student from New York, comes to Howard University is because he wants to get involved in, in this uh, expanding movement. Uh, so he arrives in uh, the fall of 1960 uh, at a time when Howard students are getting involved in sit-ins in the D.C. area. And what happens during a spring, um, spring uh, semester is that the Freedom Rides begin. Now, as you know, the story of the Freedom Rides from the uh, Eyes on the Prize film, after the initial group of Freedom Riders are, are assaulted in Alabama, Diane Nash organizes students and puts in a call uh, to Howard University to a group called the Nonviolent Action Group, NAG, on the Howard campus. And the Howard students respond by sending their own contingent to go to Mississippi. And this contingent goes, instead of going to Alabama and leaving from Birmingham and going into Mississippi, they fly to New Orleans um, in order to, because you, you recall from the film, the group from, from Birmingham, the police were waiting for them and uh, they walked basically into, into prison, so they thought, well, we'll get around this and try to uh, do another um, uh, front on this, in this fight by sending a group from, on a train from New Orleans to uh, Jackson. Now, it turned out that the same thing happened. You know, they, they couldn't really keep this secret very long, and they got arrested and went to Parchman Penitentiary. And you'll also recall from the Eyes on the Prize film what happens in Parchman is that these students get together and begin to change, exchange ideas. So you have the Nashville group coming with their religious orientation, very Gandhian orientation, and then you have this group coming from Howard University, many of them from the north, many of them coming with more secular um, kind of radicalism, uh, just as militant, just as dedicated to the st struggle, but with a different kind of ideological orientation. So if you see what happens in Monroe, North Carolina as a natural extension of the Freedom Ride, then you can understand that, well, you know, the Freedom Riders are coming into Monroe and they're bringing this kind of Gandhian sense of, of nonviolence but they're being met by Robert F. Williams, who at a crucial point when the Freedom Riders are being attacked, he comes in with his followers in the NAACP chapter armed and prepared to confront the Klan. And this results in basically a riot that takes place in Monroe. Um, a white couple who happened to be driving through Monroe at the time and get in the middle of this, Robert F. Williams takes them into his home. He is later charged with kidnapping them. So therefore, the FBI is after him. He goes into exile uh, with this uh, kidnapping charge hanging over his head. He goes to Canada, then to uh, Cuba. From Cuba, Castro welcomes him and sees him as a, as a way of kind of um, getting back at the U.S. government for its hostility, and, and which include 
you know, an, an invasion attempt in 1961 and later on an assassination attempt against uh, Castro. Uh, so he wants to welcome um, Robert F. Williams, gives him a radio program on Radio Havana, uh, which he calls Radio Free Cuba. And he begins broadcasting. Uh, despite the U.S. boycott, he begins broadcasting from Cuba, publishing a newspaper called The Crusader, and, and essentially arguing for a mili more militant direction in the movement. Robert F. Williams becomes the, the kind of symbol um, of this emerging militancy within the struggle and the Nashville and the, the group at Howard are not about to abandon nonviolence, but what they see in, in Robert F. Williams is that they want to move away from this kind of philosophical commitment that everybody in the movement has to be philosophically committed to nonviolence. This comes to a head actually during the summer of 1961 when um, SNCC holds its meeting in Nashville. You, in the In Struggle book, you'll see that that meeting is kind of the crucial meeting where they decide whether to do voter registration or whether they want to uh, uh, focus on desegregation protests. Well, while that meeting is going on, they also launch protests. They continue the protests in Nashville. And meanwhile, the Nashville group has these new recruits coming in in the August of 1961, all wanting to help out um, in carrying on the Nashville movement's campaign. During this time, Stokely Carmichael and one of the other members from, from Howard are on a picket line and they get assaulted. Now, according to Stokely Carmichael's story, he said, I was, I was committed to nonviolence, but this person came and tried to uh, attacked me, and I kind of came back and went through a plate glass window, and the window came down, and, uh, and the police arrested him. Um, and, but this becomes controversial uh, for the Nashville group because these, these uh, new recruits don't seem to have the same kind of commitment. Um, you know, they would have expected him to go limp, to do something, to avoid a confrontation, uh, with this person, and uh, instead, even though Stokely Carmichael insists, you know, I, I wasn't fighting him or anything like that, but I just wasn't, uh, you know, I would just responded to being pushed. But he ends up in jail, and you begin to see the first hints of a real split over this question of tactical nonviolence versus philosophical nonviolence. Both of them engaged in, in, uh, in uh, direct action but uh, one not trained. And, and this also, you know, it's, it's interesting that later on in the 60s, Stokely Carmichael will replace John Lewis as chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And you can see some of the tensions between the two being traced back to this early uh, episode in 1961. And probably also the conversations that take place in um, uh, Parchman Penitentiary during that summer because then they began to exchange ideas and the Howard group are not as determined to pray. Um, they're more 
likely to use this time to discuss political philosophies. And at Howard, there is a consciousness-changing effort going on. It's called Project Awareness. And it's launched by the NAG group. And it involves bringing in speakers. One of their first speakers, for example, is Herbert Apthecker. I don't know if, how many of you have heard of that name. Lindsay has because she's been in the Herbert Apthecker Library uh, at the King Institute. Herbert Apthecker was a major theoretician of the Communist Party. And, uh, and he also wrote some of the landmark books in African-American history during the 1940s and 50s at a time when it was a field ignored by most scholars. He wrote uh, about the Nat Turner Rebellion, both wrote the first uh, uh, major book about uh, Nat Turner's slave revolt. And he wrote a book called American Negro Slave Revolts. He worked with Du Bois during the 1940s um, when Du Bois was at the NAACP. Uh, and he also uh, edited a landmark series called The Documentary History of the Negro People in the United States, seven volumes of documents that is probably, even today, the best documentary source on, on African-American history. Well, to bring in a communist to Howard University in 1962 was something very, very controversial, even though it was part of a debate with a person who was a non-communist. But their next decision was even more controversial, and that was to bring in Malcolm X to debate with Bayard Rustin. Uh, the the Rustin-Balcom um, debate, I think, was a crucial turning point because it brought in black nationalist ideas. Uh, I think that the NAG group went into the debate expecting that, uh, that Rustin would kind of blow away um, Malcolm X. They were very familiar with, with Rustin. He was a tremendous debater, uh, someone who... Uh, whose ideas expressed them with a great deal of, of um, uh, force and, and had already been working with the NAG group. If anything, he was kind of their informal advisor, um, someone who kind of pushed them toward a kind of socialist point of view uh, that was also anti-communist. Well, the, the debate which um, Stokely Carmichael later wrote about. I'll just read a, a small section from his autobiography. He said that the debate was the first time I would be seeing Malcolm X up close. Bayard we already knew. Sometimes when we had a large demonstration, he'd come and afterwards always lead a discussion. Sometimes he'd bring an African leader. But Malcolm, the racist demagogue, regularly demonized all over the white press was making his first appearance at Howard, and he was a real novelty. We met him when he got to campus. Um, Michael Philwell interviewed him for the newspaper, then brought him over for a little dinner we had organized for our guests. Upon his appearance in the small dining room, the atmosphere abruptly changed. Suddenly the room became totally silent, but strangely charged. The clatter of silverware, the hum of conversation, everything just stopped. All heads turned toward the door. There he stood, smiling often, almost diffidently in the doorway. Tall, slender, with his horn-rimmed glasses, glinting, the expression on his lean face alert, carrying himself, 
erect with a formality, a quiet dignity in his posture, yet beneath it an unmistakable warmth. Without doing a thing, for a moment he simply commanded the entire space. Salam alaikum, brothers and sisters. Sorry if I'm a little late, but your young editors turned me every which way but loose. They were without mercy. He politely declined to eat with us, explaining that for religious reasons he ate only one meal each day. He sat a little apart, taking cup after cup of black coffee and our endless questions. Malcolm had presence, something you could not miss, but neither could you quite name. It was a noticeable life force, an energy field, an aura, a something quite unlike any other leader I had seen <coughs> until I had the honor of meeting um, Sikature of, of Guinea. El Comandante Fidel Castro is a leader who also radiated a similar personal magnetism. Now, Dr. King had great charisma once he started to speak. That was the power of Nomo, the African spoken word. But before Dr. King unrolled that magnificent voice and revealed the eloquence of his moral force, he could be standing in the room and you could easily not notice him. But if Malcolm or Sikatore or Fidel Castro stood completely still and silent in a large crowded room, you, everyone knew it. There, Malcolm sat, drinking coffee and answering her questions. He was unfailingly courteous, treating each questioner and his or her question with wit, care, and great respect, which put everyone at ease. Well, after that first meeting, um, the Stokely Carmichael continued to have some interactions with, with Malcolm and his followers. And as he became more involved in the struggle, began to bring not only socialist ideas, but also black nationalist ideas um, into, into the struggle. Now, Stokely had grown up as a child of immigrants from Trinidad, uh, who had immigrated to New York he came to New York when he was 11, went to um, public schools in New York, uh, got into Bronx High School of Science, which was, uh, you had to take an exam to get in there, one of the best high schools. Um, very bright. Uh, I think I mentioned in, in Struggle that he, um, one of his friends in high school was Gene Dennis, uh, whose father was a leader of the Communist Party who was sent to prison during the McCarthy era of the, of the 1950s. So he was exposed to um, uh, the white left at this predominantly white high school he went to. And probably if he hadn't, if it not been for the movement, he would have gone to uh, a predominantly white college and probably continued to be involved in, in uh, um, various kinds of leftist activities, for example, uh, going to the United Nations and picketing on, on various issues, uh, things that uh, were common in the burgeoning uh, white left of that, of that time. But once the sit-in started, he knew that he wanted to be part of that, of that movement, came to Howard, but promised his parents that he would graduate. So what he would typically do is finish the school year and, and whatever was going on, in 1961, it was going to join the Freedom Ride, spend the rest of the summer doing that, go back to college in the fall. Next year, 
um, uh, what's happening, Albany, Georgia, um, various kinds of activities in, in uh, um, Mississippi, uh, go and get involved in that. The summer of 1963, the same kind of thing happened of working to, in support of the Mississippi, uh, Mississippi struggle. And it was in that context that he came to a meeting of the National Student Association that was held in, in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. And he came there in order to get the national student movement to support SNCC and the Southern struggle, especially financial support. This was at a time when they were just beginning to develop the idea of the Mississippi Summer Project that was going to happen in the summer of 1964. So this meeting happened in, in August of, of 63. What else happened in August of 63? The March on Washington. So this was right before the March on Washington. And it was also the first time that I met Stokely Carmichael because I was also at the, uh, at the NSA meeting. Um, I had just finished my first year at, of college um, and wanted to get more and more involved. I was out in New Mexico. Parents had, uh, were, had moved to New Mexico after World War II. Um, when my father got out of the military, he became a security guard at this um, place which was famous for building atomic bombs. And uh, so that's where I had grown up. And if you're going to college at the University of New Mexico and the movement is way in the south, it's pretty far away. Uh, so for me, it was an opportunity to find out more about what was going on in the South and perhaps get involved. And it didn't take very long for Stokely to find me and for me to find Stokely because there weren't very many black students at this, at this meeting. <laughs> Probably we were a small minority of maybe 2 or 3% of the, of the students attending. And Stokely was, even then, an organizer. Um, I was immediately impressed by him. He, was, he had a certain dynamic uh, qualities, very good speaker. Um, he was a philosophy uh, major at, at Howard. And you could tell even then that he had been exposed to a lot of different things the, the, through the project awareness, the kind of people he had met. He was on a first name basis with people like Harry Belafonte and, and uh, James Baldwin had you know, come to Howard University to speak. And, and of course, uh, Malcolm X and, and other people I had just heard about. Um, he also had come with a, came with a background of, of activism, the kind of thing that many of us wanted to get in, involved in. Now for me, I, my hope that summer was to go to the March on Washington. I thought that that was, you know, I'd heard a lot about it. I wanted to find a way of getting there. And one of the things I recall is the first time I mentioned going to the march, he just kind of put it down, you know, like, why would you want to go there? I mean, that's just going to be a picnic, you know, as you just sit around and, and listen to speeches. Why don't you come and join us in Greenwood, Mississippi? Um, well, at the time, the chances of me going to Greenwood, Mississippi were not that great. I mean, it, it's, um, it was not something that I would have even conceived of, of kind of dropping out of school. I had the same kind of commitment to my parents. I was going to graduate. So, um, so I, I told him, well, you know, look, this is, I, I really hope I get to go to the march. This is about the most militant thing I've ever done in my life, so, <laughs> so uh, don't expect to, too much more. But it, I remember that first meeting 
um, of the, with the people in SNCC, all of them were just really enthusiastic about what they were doing, and it made, put me on the defensive. You know, why wasn't I willing to go to uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, or Albany, Georgia, or all these other places? You know, what was I doing so important in school that was more important than that? Now, I, now Stokely didn't tell me, I'm going back to school. You know, at the same time he's telling me to go to uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, he was going to finish up his senior year at Howard, but he wasn't saying that. Um, in any case, the, the few SNCC representatives, there was another woman, um, uh, Lucy Commissar, who was the editor of the Mississippi Free Press. I remember she spent a lot of time with me telling me about the Mississippi movement, teaching me some freedom songs, which I didn't know. and. Uh, Basically, all of them were recruiters. They, they, they would look upon a young black student like myself and say, you've got to be, you've got to be with us. You've got to come and join the movement. And um, it was hard to say no. But um, for me, it was enough going to the march. I managed to get a ride with a group from Indiana who were going to the march on Washington. Ended up going there. and. Um, you could kind of imagine for a person 19 years old showing up by myself, like I knew nobody at the march, um, and showing up at this event that no one knew how it was going to turn out. All I did know was that, that um, it was more black people than I had seen in all my life <laughs> to that point. You don't see a lot in New Mexico. Um, and it was a... It was a really important experience. Now, one of the things I thought about, especially since becoming editor of the King Papers, is what did I think of Martin Luther King's speech? I've been asked that question lots. And I don't really have a lot of you know, real memories of it. You know, I think it was so, by the end of that day, I was probably so tired and, and also interested in how I was going to get home because I had about $30 in my pocket. I had a bus ticket from Indianapolis to New Mexico, and here I was in Washington, D.C. And so I wasn't at all clear. So probably at that time, by the time King gave a speech at the end of the day, um, I was probably searching around trying to find a way um, to get home. Meanwhile, though, I remember being very, very impressed with uh, John Lewis when he came. Because even at that time, the people in SNCC were people my age. King was you know, this kind of charismatic figure. We had all heard about him. We all admired him. But the idea that the SNCC people and that one, a person close to my age was up there on the podium speaking with the rest of these leaders, that was what was impressive. And, and I think we were all very proud of him. Of course, later on when I interviewed him, found out what went on behind the scenes, which is in the books about his censoring of his speech. You know, that was... That was something I would not have known about at that, at that point. Um, I thought about this when uh, Clarence Jones spoke in this class, and, and I was just thinking of just the, the remarkable coincidence that you know, I was sitting down probably less than you know, maybe 100 feet from him when he's up there on the stage passing notes to, uh, to Martin Luther King, and I'm a nobody from you know, no place, you know, and just... Um, trying to get a, a good look at all these great people on the, on the, uh, at the podium. 
it was it was a tremendous event, um, and it another thing that really struck me that I stayed in my mind is that it was also a well managed event. There were all these rules about you know you can only uh, sing certain songs, you can only bring certain signs, all the stuff that Malcolm complained about later that it was a uh, an event managed by the leaders to make sure that there was no violence and that there was no militancy. I mean, you know, all the people who uh, spoke on the stage, they had to have their speeches cleared. Um, but in the midst of this, I remember this one group that was weaving through the crowd. You know, everybody else was kind of walking, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, even walking very fast or with a lot of energy. But there was this one group kind of weaving throughout, singing not just We Shall Overcome, but lots of other songs, and they were wearing overalls. And that was the group from the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. So even then, they were, there was this, this presence, this energy that was coming from Mississippi that was not apparent in all the other um, people like myself who were, who were there probably participating in, in our first demonstration. Um, after the march, Stokely goes back to college um, at, uh, at Howard to finish up his last year. But that's also the year that the organization of the Mississippi Summer Project takes place. And from your readings, you should be aware that that became a source of controversy, the, the emergence of Allard Lowenstein, who was the Stanford dean um, who went south to help the movement. He comes in the summer of 63 after the assassination of Medgar Evers. And there's a number of demonstrations that take place. And in the course of those demonstrations, Lowenstein puts forward the idea of a freedom vote in Mississippi. The freedom vote, he got that idea from Southwest Africa, what is now Namibia. And because people couldn't vote, they had staged an election as a protest election where people could come and show that they wanted to vote if only legally, if that were legally possible. Well, Lowenstein wanted to do the same thing in Mississippi. And he felt that this was a way of getting around what many Southerners, white Southerners were saying is that, well, the reason why black people aren't voting is they just don't want to. They just don't want to go down and go through the work of registering to vote. So he felt that this would be a good way of communicating to people that this was not the reason. So he came back to Stanford fall of 1963 and began to recruit Stanford students to come and uh, a few, maybe a dozen or so Stanford students went in the fall of, of 1963 to help with the freedom vote. And it's during this time that they also began to say, well, why don't we do a much bigger effort in the summer of 1964? So. At the same time, Lowenstein is trying to get white students to go. People like Stokely Carmichael are trying to recruit black students to go. And there really hasn't been a, a good accounting of the way in which these two parallel efforts, um, one of them had a great deal more success. That is, there were 
maybe a thousand white students who came south for the summer of 1964 uh, versus a few dozen black students. Part of the reason was financial. Um, I actually went to one of the, the planning meetings that took place in New Orleans in uh, December of 1963, and that's where I first met Bob Moses. Um, and it also, at that time, they began to discuss how the, the summer project was going to be held. And even at that meeting, there was a lot of effort to get people like myself to commit. Uh, many of the black students who did go ended up actually as project directors if they had had movement experience. So a lot of them who came out of Howard ended up as project directors of these various things be because the younger, um, the white students who came in usually came in without any kind of Southern experience. Now, I would have probably been in half of one camp and half of the other since I had not had any real Southern experience. But I remember, again, being very impressed with Bob Moses and also the contrast between Bob Moses and Stokely Carmichael. And I can't think of two more different personalities. Bob Moses, you've seen him on, on the screen, how quiet, soft-spoken, uh, just uh, everyone respected his courage, uh, the, the, the kind of, the way in which he would always project other people as leaders, kind of following the Ella Baker uh, idea. Uh, Stokely Carmichael, probably at the other extreme, very dynamic, charismatic, um, a leader himself and kind of self-confident about, about that. But in the context of the Southern movement, Bob Moses was the boss. And you, you also see in the accounts of, of, of the Mississippi summer how there is some tension between Stokely Carmichael as a project director in Greenwood and Bob Moses as the overall director. But it's very clear Stokely Carmichael you know, this is his first time on the SNCC staff. He's not going to um, challenge Bob Moses. And he is um, probably one of the best organizers SNCC had that summer. And he really believed in that idea of trying to develop leadership qualities in, in other people. Later on, when I did the research for the SNCC book, I went back to um, Greenwood, interviewed many of the people um, that he had worked with, and all of them expressed an enormous admiration for uh, Stokely's role uh, during that summer. Well, the summer project of 1964 is the beginning of Stokely's emergence as a force within SNCC because that's when he joins the SNCC staff. Now, the summer is also a crucial turning point for the movement because what happens at the end of the summer? Everybody goes to, um, to um, Atlantic City for the Democratic National Convention. At the end of that, there's this compromise uh, which the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party rejects the compromise offered by Johnson. And what is the result of that? Well, for many of the, of the SNCC workers, that led to an increasing disillusionment with the Democratic Party of no longer trusting liberal Democrats 
when, when the crunch came, their, the feeling was many of their allies disappeared uh, because they wanted to be affiliated with Lyndon Johnson and his re-election, and they felt that that was the way of power. So there, you have this split between liberals and what later become radicals, you know, radicals in the movement. Needless to say, by this time, my sympathies were with the radicals, that, uh, that that's where um, uh, I wanted to be. It was, uh, by that time, I still wanted to finish college, but I did wanted to get closer to movement activity. I had a sister living in L.A., so I decided to transfer to UCLA. Um, um, so I ended up in L.A. in 1965 at the same time this transition, actually in 64, the same time this transition is, is taking place. Um, for the people in SNCC, the 64-65 period is a period of transition. They know that they want to develop an alternative to liberalism, but they don't know what that alternative is. They know that it has to kind of come out of the work that they're doing in the South. Part of it is um, in, in the In Struggle book, you kind of get a picture of, of how that transition takes place. I call it turning inward. Um, and what happens during that period is enormous amount of internal debate goes on within the movement. And that ferment is something that's happening nationwide. So I felt it in L.A. in a group called the Nonviolent Action Committee, NVAC. Uh, which was kind of the SNCC equivalent in, in L.A. Um, we were all influenced by Malcolm X, and you recall that Malcolm X, from my le previous lecture, he's um, making inroads into SNCC, inviting uh, SNCC people. All of us developed a greater and greater admiration for what Malcolm was doing, primarily because he left the Nation of Islam. Because before that, there was a feeling of, who is this guy? Why is he criticizing us? We're the ones putting our, you know, our bodies on the line. He's up there in New York talking about self-defense. Why doesn't he do, send his followers into Birmingham and practice self-defense there? You know, and, but by 1964, Malcolm is, is basically telling his followers, you need to get more involved in the struggle. And he sent some of his, uh, his followers into Mississippi to, to work with SNCC. At the same time, SNCC people, many of them had, who had come from urban areas, some of them from the north, but many of them from urban areas, had said, you know, we can't just concentrate on the rural south. Mississippi, the delta of Mississippi is important, but if we're really about building up grassroots leadership, well, now's the time to turn over the Mississippi movement to that grassroots leadership. Let the Mississippi people carry on that struggle, and let's go to places where the struggle has not begun. Where is that? The Black Belt of Alabama and urban areas in the north. So it's in the spring of 1965 during the Selma to Montgomery March 
Stokely Carmichael goes into Lowndes County, Alabama with a very small number of, of organizers. Lowndes County is in the center of uh, Alabama. Uh, it's on the way between um, Selma and Montgomery. It's rural. It's predominantly black. It's, uh, it's an area where almost no black, I think at that time there were actually no black people registered to vote. Maybe two, uh, yeah, a, a, maybe a few. Uh, so it was, it was a difficult place to go into. I mean, during the Lowndes County struggle, people would get killed, um, and the dangers were enormous. Um, I think I mentioned earlier in this class when I went there to do research, it was still kind of, you know, even with a black sheriff, you still felt that way out on those roads, no one would know when you would disappear. And uh, it's, uh, I don't know if it's even changed today. I, it would be interesting to kind of go back there, if, uh, how much of it has really changed. Uh, there's, there's been a book about it and that kind of makes the point that Lowndes County is an area that hasn't changed very much from the Reconstruction period. The only thing that's different is that many black people have left it to find better opportunities um, elsewhere. But in any case, what he did, uh, what Stokely Carmichael did there, is to take the ideas of grassroots leadership. After all, with a small number of organizers, you're not going to be the leaders. You have to find the leaders working with um, local people in the Lowndes County area and developing the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And I, you, you're probably familiar with the story of how uh, the Democratic Party on the ballot had the white rooster as its symbol. So the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, they wanted to be not just an unofficial party like the, like the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, but a real official party. They wanted to be on the ballot and be able to run candidates in the general election. So they chose as their symbol the Black Panther. And that was the origin because that, kind of, that name kind of got picked up as the Black Panther Party. And a pamphlet about the Lowndes County Freedom Organization found its way into the hands of Bobby Seale and Huey Newton out in Oakland and that's where they picked up the idea of forming their own Black Panther Party. Well, what made the Black Panther Party unique was that it was independent of the Democratic Party. That sent a message to the Democratic Party that, you know, we're not just organizing black people to join the Democratic Party. I mean, joining the Republican Party was completely out of the question. But Joining the Democratic Party, that was the expectation of the Johnson administration because, after all, he had said that part of the, the whole strategy of the Voting Rights Act was that, yes, you're going to lose a lot of the white South by affiliating with civil rights, but new black voters will come on the rolls and presumably they will vote Democratic, so the change will not be as as uh, you know, he felt that you would really lose the South. And he said, you'd lose the South for a generation, but you would gain black votes outside the South 
by supporting civil rights. Well, what Johnson was basically doing is, is setting the stage for the time from the 60s to the present. What Stokely Carmichael felt he was doing was carrying on the work of Malcolm X when he formed the um, Organization of African American Unity because that was Malcolm X trying to develop a black political expression that would be independent of any political party, existing political party. Well, to some degree, the, the Black Panther Party in Lowndes County was an expression of that, of that idea. Well, this takes us to the spring of 1965. You know, I'm sitting out there in Los Angeles, uh, going to school occasionally, um, mostly writing articles and participating in protests for um, um, the Nonviolent Action Committee. Uh, the the way in which you qualified for membership was to get arrested. So unless you had been arrested, you couldn't be a member of the organization, and that helped solve lots of debates about whether to engage in protest because, you know, unless you were willing to do that, you didn't have a vote. Um, but another thing that had changed, though, was that increasingly we felt that we were just as much on the front lines as the people working in the South. The distinction was not between North and South anymore. It was between the kinds of work that you were doing there was a Black Panther Party being formed in Los Angeles. Um, there was an effort to, uh, to break off South Central LA and form a, uh, what was to be called Freedom City. Um, there was a, an effort to, to try to develop a, a more militant kind of politics that would focus more on jobs issues, um, employment issues. NVAC's main um, goal was to try to increase uh, black employment at places where black people shopped. Uh, Thrifty Mart, which, which was a market chain, was one of our targets. Um, so that was the kind of work that we were doing in the spring of 1965. What happens in the summer of 65? Okay, the Watts, what we would call the Watts Rebellion. And here, for many of us, we felt for a while that, that even though we were on the front lines, the front lines hadn't quite found us. That, but with Watts, we felt, okay, now this is where the struggle is. Um, for many people like myself, it was a confusing time because um, we had been trained um, and experienced in terms of using the tactics of the, of the struggle. We felt that we were more militant. We were kind of uh, not committed to the philosoph philosophical ideas behind nonviolence, but we were still basically using those tactics, the picket, picketing, sit-ins, things like that. Then suddenly, the NVAC headquarters on Central Avenue, uh, one day we walk out the front door and uh, uh, people are breaking in to stores um, later on that evening. As far as you can see in either direction, everything was, was burning. 
Um, this was unprecedented. I mean, now I guess you would probably be more familiar with the more recent LA um, up, uprising. Uh, it probably is something that you're, that's part of your experience, but at the time in 1965, we had never seen anything like this, and we didn't know. We thought it, it was the beginning of a revolution. I mean, it was, uh, uh, people were uh, not only taking over, but you would see police on the street, and they would drive up, and you would see the police watching people breaking into stores and not being able to do anything about it. And that kind of sense of the impotency of police, who we all had a tremendous dislike for, the LA police, um, this was a, a, um, an incident that, that really forced us to re-examine our assumptions. After that, the election in Lowndes County takes place, and the Lowndes County Freedom Organization doesn't win, but succeeds tremendously, comes very close to winning, and it's quite clear that in the next election they're going to succeed in taking over the county. Well, that leads us to the spring of 1966, when Stokely Carmichael becomes the chair of SNCC. Um, and that election, which I describe in the book, so I'm not going to go through it. It's, it, it, it's a very contentious election. Um, just to summarize basically what happens is that everyone assumes that John Lewis is going to be reelected as chair. Because who's going to oppose him? You know, no, one, no one disagrees that he's uh, very brave and, and all of that. But there is some sense that SNCC needs a different kind of face. So there is discussion about his leadership. And that discussion eventually leads to Stokely Carmichael being put forward as an alternative candidate. And this debate becomes increasingly rancorous um, within the organization, so much so that most of the people, by the time of the actual election, leave. And Stokely Carmichael was elected chair of SNCC by a vote of 17 to 16 because with lots of people basically abstaining, saying, you know, whatever you guys want, um, because SNCC had never really cared very much about leaders. And um, leaders had, had always, it had almost been a dirty word uh, to call somebody a leader, because in the ethos of Bob Moses, who wants to be a leader? You want to be an organizer. Well, Stokely Carmichael becomes chair. And immediately, the press begins to focus on him, especially after the Mississippi March of 1966. This is the march through Mississippi after James Meredith is shot. Uh, James Meredith wanted to march through Mississippi in the aftermath of the Voting Rights Act, saying that black people have nothing to fear. Well, you know, he gets a little outside of Memphis into Mississippi, and he gets shot. Well, uh, what, clearly, that's not the message you want to send if you're in favor of voting rights. So all the leaders come to Miss Memphis and meet and decide that they need to carry on um, 
carry on the march. The, um, this is where the tensions begin to develop between Stokely Carmichael, um, Floyd McKissick, the leader of CORE, and the leader of the NAACP, Roy Wilkins. Um, they basically tell Roy Wilkins that they want to carry on this march, take it into Mississippi, and Wilkins, with some support from King, basically say, yeah, this has to be, this should be another Selma to Montgomery march. And what did he mean by that? Well, the Selma to Montgomery march, where the call went out for support and who responded to that support? It was basically white religious people who were the most likely to come immediately and participate in the Selma to Montgomery march. They were in the front lines. Well, that's not the kind of march that Stokely Carmichael wanted in, in Mississippi. He wanted to send the message that this was now a black struggle with black people in the forefront. King. When we come to it, we, this people, on this minuscule and kissless globe, who reach daily for the bomb, the blade, the dagger, yet who petition in the dark for tokens of peace, we, this people, on this moat of matter, in whose mouths abide cankerous words, which challenge our existence. Yet, out of those same mouths can come songs of such exquisite sweetness that the heart falters in its labor and the body is quieted into awe. We, this people, on this small and drifting planet, whose hands can strike with such abandon that in a twinkling life is sapped from the living, Yet those same hands can touch with such healing, irresistible tenderness that the haughty neck is happy to bow and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor divines. When we come to it, we, this people, on this wayward floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety and without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible, we are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it.